He is risen indeed. Wait, I'm supposed to say that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. It's the truth. Amen. Amen. Joe, I love the, the sentiment of uh, not being church-ish. Can we not be church-ish for a little while this morning? I have a text uh, that I've been excited about. I've been reading for some time and mulling over, and I really am excited. I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm more excited than I am nervous. Um, fear is kind of a thing for me, so I just, I just want to let it go. Can we all just breathe an exhale of rest? <sighs> He's risen. He's risen. That's the most important thing of the day. He's risen. Here's our text for this morning. John 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld You ever wish you could sit and have a conversation with Jesus? You wish you could just sit in a room. I, I, think of, I think of sitting in a room with my dad these days, just knowing that, um, knowing that we're having trouble connecting at times because of the, the dementia that he's facing. But I so long to connect with him. You know, more and more, it's, time is our enemy in a moment like this, right? I just want to sit with him and talk. I want him to pour into me more now than ever before. You know how that feels when you're a kid. Your parents are fools, right? And uh, the older you get, the more I long to spend time with him. You just listen. I feel that way about my relationship with Jesus. What would it be like to just sit in a room with him, just be locked in to a deeply personal conversation with Jesus and to listen to him? Just listen. I think at times the, there's some of our charismatic friends that get all the fun of language like that. I've heard from Jesus. And in some ways we... We wipe that from our conservative evangelical language because there's something that we don't understand. I feel like we can. We can listen to Jesus. As we look at a text like this, he, I don't think he put this text together for us and carried it along by the power of the Spirit of God to us today that we would discount it in some way and say, well, he said that to them, but he's not speaking to us. I think we can look at him, see what he does, and I think we can listen to him. Listen to what he says and find application for today. 
in the beginning of this of this text, it says Jesus, or I'm sorry, earlier in uh, in this, or later, sorry, later in John, it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I believe that's why this text was given to us, so that it would challenge us that we might believe, that there might be an encouragement that the Spirit of God would prod in us to trust him today, that we would listen to him and we would trust him. So here we begin with a few observations, just looking at Jesus, looking at what's taking place in this little scene. We're not looking at this scene to try to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I think there are texts that talk about the fact that Jesus appeared to many people other than this scene. One of them in 1 Corinthians 15 that that Gary read this morning as he was leading us in worship. The, The gospel is that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. It's true that Christ raised from the dead, and these people that saw Jesus recorded what they saw. There was confirmation going on between them, and as this was carried on, we can look back to this record and say, hey, There's some validity to what happened here. This isn't just random stuff. Jesus rose from the dead. They saw him and they talked with him. They ate with him. They had conversations with him before he went to his father. So here's a couple of observations from this specific text. A couple of observations. There's no knocking, just entering. No knocking, just entering. On the other side of that relationship, there's no invitation made. There's no prayer warrior incantation. There's no fervent prayer summit. No faithful few knocking on the door of heaven. Just resurrected Jesus, going where men cannot go. Let me emphasize this. These brothers were not in this room hiding, performing, so that Jesus would show up. And praise God, praise God that Jesus is not consumed with their performance. There's no knocking, he just enters. They don't have to get it right. After all, they're the ones that ran. They're the ones that abandoned Jesus. No knocking, he just comes in. Another observation, these dear souls were afraid. They were really scared. Needy, fearful souls, no superhumans. My guess is there's about, there's 10 of the disciples there. Maybe there's less, doesn't actually say how many of the disciples are present. We know that Thomas wasn't there. We know that Judas wasn't there probably fearing for their life. If they killed Jesus, why wouldn't they kill us too? Can you imagine? I can imagine walking with Jesus would have given them a sense of 
security. He knew what to say. He knew what to do. He, he faced the turmoils of conversation and conflict, and he knew exactly what timing and what tone and who to talk to and what to talk to them about. Most of it was so utterly confusing, to be honest. They ask him questions, and he asks questions that sound like doesn't have anything to do with what they're asking about. He just knew what to do. We like leaders that just know what to do. But for now, these men are needy, fearful souls in a room. Third observation, Jesus doesn't hold out. Jesus doesn't hold out. He stands there right there in their midst. Jesus is not an aloof rock star. He has every right to be, quite honestly. Jesus, 100% human, 100% God, is standing in the middle of them with his resurrected human body. He has every reason to be a rock star. But he said, look at the holes in my hands where the nails were. Look at the hole in my side where they stuck the spear. The account in Luke adds that he ate a meal with them, and we all say amen to that. What we see is when they're at their worst, consumed with fear, where is Jesus? He's right there with them. A couple of encouraging words to us. A couple of encouraging words to you as we sit together on resurrection morning regarding these observations. First one is this. Jesus knows exactly where you are this morning and he can go places that no one can go. Jesus knows exactly where you are. He knows the condition of your heart. He knows the condition of your family. He knows about the conversation in the car on the way here. He knows you wanna sit in a different chair. You wish you were sitting farther back and not in the front. It's the only place, only place in the world where punishment is to sit in the front of a room. He knows right where you're at. He knows what you did. He knows what you do. He knows what's been done to you. He knows where you go. He knows where you're at in your heart at this very moment. And he can go there. He can go there in a way that no parent can go there. He can go there in a way that no spouse, no sibling, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no pastor, no counselor. He can go places where nobody else can go. And he's not asking your permission. He's not waiting for you to get it right. He's not asking you to to learn the right prayer, to say the right thing before he enters. No knocking, just coming in. Second word of encouragement. Your fear is not the end of relationship with God but it is the context of it. 
your fear, what feels like is going to end everything. You know what that feels like? When I get afraid, I, I don't know that anybody wants to be my friend. I could have five people standing around me who love me dearly, and when I'm stricken with fear, I don't know that I want to be loved by anyone. But fear in the context of pre the presence of Jesus does not end relationship. It actually is the place where he connects with you. It's a place where in your weakness, his presence matters more than you getting it right. Your fear doesn't end relationship. It's the context of it. Fear is such a common response of the human heart, right? I struggle with it. Fear of not being able to keep up whether it be homework or sermons or taxes, God knows, taxes. Dog poop in the yard. <sighs> I fear that I'm not enough. Not enough for my wife, my kids, my church. Fear that my testimony causes someone to give up on Jesus. Fear that my kids would give up on the faith. Fear that I would become enamored with money or things of the world. Fear that fear will win and peace will never come. And in my fear, in our fear, Jesus doesn't run from us. He doesn't stand off at a distance quoting scripture telling me how much I'm failing because he told me not to be afraid. He's 100% human, Jesus, saying, I get it. I get it, I'm here. I'm here. Third word of encouragement. Jesus is deeply personal in every event of your life. Jesus is deeply personal in every event of your life. Many of you know I went to Australia for a couple of weeks to be a part of a ministry called Restoration Groups. One of the young men in my group, his name's John, he, uh, he's a church planter, he's American, and he's a church planter near the city of Perth. And uh, he and his wife had a little girl, it was their second daughter, First one completely healthy, their second daughter was born with a, with a disease that put a blister covering over 100% of her body. You know what it feels like to have a blister on your finger. This was 100% of her body covered with a blister. And it was tumultuous in the pain and the fear that he was working through as we sat together was excruciating. And every story he told was as if he was all by himself with his daughter. And I said to him, John, it just must have been so lonely. And he just, he melted. Even more than his daughter's pain and the struggle of not knowing what was going to happen, he felt so lonely, out of control, don't know what to do, 
can't fix it. As we work together and to work through some areas of repentance and considering who Jesus is and thinking differently about Jesus, by the time we were done over three days' time, his testimony at the end of the, of the session was this. It, it's almost as if there was a camera on us and, and it was zoomed in so tightly that the only people in the picture was me and my wife and our little girl. And the beauty is, is as I know Jesus and I know who he is and I know what he wants for me, it's like, it's like the camera just zoomed out. And guess who was there in our midst? There's Christ with his arms around us, caring for us, caring for every little detail of what's happening to my little girl, to my wife, to our relationship, and to my heart. He's not alone anymore. He never was. See, Jesus, deeply, deeply personal with every single circumstance of life. I don't think it's any different for these men who are in this room fearing for their life. It's no different for you. Jesus wants to be and is deeply personally engaged in every circumstance of life. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Just some observations of who Jesus is, what he's like, and some encouragement. What did, what did Jesus say? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to sit with Jesus long enough and just be quiet and listen to what he says? What would it be like if we could have a conversation with him and listen and believe what he's saying to us. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is Withheld. What are the things that Jesus actually says? Risen Christ speaks to people. Jesus comes in the room and says, peace be with you. He shows them the wounds of the crucifixion. And again, he says it again, peace be with you. Now, when you've abandoned your friend... The words you least expect to hear are what? Peace be with you. We don't know everyone was, that was there. Maybe Peter was there. We know a bit about who Peter is and what he's like, so that helps us a bit. We don't know if he was there or not, but if he was there, we all know what the scene looked like with Peter before the crucifixion. Denying Jesus after saying that he would never, he would never. Later we see that Jesus completely restores Peter, but it's to this Peter, if he's there in that room as one of the disciples, it's this Peter 
that Jesus says, peace be with you. We know that Thomas wasn't there yet. He shows up a little bit later and he doesn't believe the other disciples when they tell the story. Verse 26 says that Jesus went through all the same same stuff with him. He says to Thomas, peace be with you. Put your fingers right, right in the wounds. I want you to know who I am. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The point here is this. When you've abandoned your leader and your friend, you don't expect peace. Maybe anger. You abandoned me. Maybe disappointment. How how could you? Maybe questioning. Where Where were you when I needed you? Jesus does what? He brings peace. Peace be with you. And what happens to the room? All the tension in the room just goes, and there's joy. Jesus, it's you. It's you. The Jesus who brings peace brings joy. A couple of points of application here. Four ways that Jesus speaks peace into our lives. You want to write these down. Four ways that Jesus speaks peace into our lives. The first is this, peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5, uh, 6 to eight says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Picture here is obvious, like we can't imagine dying for someone else. I would like to think that I would die for one of my children, for my wife, good people. But Jesus, Jesus, he died for us. While we were yet sinners, we kind of know who we are, don't we? Like that makes sense. Going on in this passage says, But God shows his love for us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God came to us in that vertical relationship between us and God. There is now peace. Where there was enemies, there are now friends. There are two people that have been reconciled to one another. And how is this done? By the work of the cross. It's what we talked about on Friday night. 
He is the propitiation. He is the payment. He is the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God that really was due for us. But reconciled. We are reconciled. God came to us. Peace with God is what what Christ speaks to us. He speaks to us peace with others. Peace with others. Ephesians 2, 13 to 19 say this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The picture here is of a a church where there are Jews and there are Gentiles, and there are massive cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. Those external means that keep them separated are nothing for the work of Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, the two have become one man. We get to be one church, one Savior, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. The two have become one. We get peace with others because of what Christ has done, all the way down to individual relationships. I get peace in my marriage, not because I'm a good husband, but because we have a good Savior. I get peace with the people I work with, not because I'm a good manager or I'm a good employee, but because we have a different basis for our rest together. We both have Christ. My vertical relationship with God and my horizontal relationship with others. Peace is spoken by Christ. Third one is this. Peace with yourself. Peace with yourself. This is no psychobabble. This is a reality. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because of what Christ has accomplished, I get the freedom from the tormenting tormenting guilt and shame associated with sin. I get to put my head on the pillow at night. Not because I got it right all day, but because he cleanses my conscience. Forgiven. Delighted in, adopted, clothed, cleansed. My identity is rich with all that he has accomplished and says about me. And my conscience is cleaned by him. Again, a story from this guy who was in another group in this, uh, in this, in this ministry in Australia He's an Indian man, probably around 60 years old, an Indian man who 
was a doctor who worked in the bush with tribal peoples. He was not a believer when he first started this work, just wanted to do a good work to care for people. His conscience was so troubled when he came to the group, he was silent. He would not speak because there was such a, uh, a stirring of unsettled conscience inside of him. He knew what needed to be said. He knew what needed to be exposed. This doctor had become a pastor. Now he's a pastor amongst these same people, but there was still something troubling him. He would spend two to three hours awake every single night, troubled by his conscience. Mark, this doctor, had done so many abortions amongst these tribal peoples that he couldn't even say how many he had done. And he stood before a small group of us. To him, he said it felt like there were 2,000 people sitting in front of him. The weight of his conscience And then as Christ speaks peace to him, he says, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. This is what I did. And I'm so sorry. The shame and the guilt, the heaviness of his heart, to look at his countenance change and transform. It's not unlike When you look at a person who doesn't know Christ yet and they're wrestling with the truth of the gospel and then they do understand and the spirit of God comes in and there's this rest and this relief and there's this countenance on their face of he knows Christ. It was just like that with this man. A clean conscience. Jesus speaks peace that we might have peace within ourselves. Last one is this. There's an ultimate peace in the world because of Christ. It's coming. That's why I use the word ultimate. There's going to be an ultimate peace in the world because of Christ. If any of you have looked at the news this morning, you've seen what happened in Sri Lanka. The churches and hotels that are burning 140 dead at this point and counting 560 wounded. This isn't the end of the story. Now, I don't want to minimize what is happening to these people and their families by any way. It is horrible. It is horrific. Yet, in contrast to that, the scriptures say, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with the justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is not the end of the story. There are things in the news, absolutely, but each one of you have stories. 
Each one of you have families. Each one of you knows stories from work. Each one of you knows stories from your past, from your family's past, from your community. Each one of you knows stories of the brokenness of this world. Can I tell you, Jesus speaks peace, ultimate peace, into all of that. And of his righteousness, there will be no end. Let's jump back into our text. What's the second thing we hear Jesus say? The second thing we hear him say is, I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Yeah, this is quite shocking. You need to feel the weight of this. This is really shocking that Jesus would do this. Especially the way we function. I think the way we function as, uh, as, as, as conservative evangelicals, we think that somebody is supposed to have like a seminary degree before they can do the work of an evangelist. And this model just is utterly shocking. These people just abandoned Jesus. They're hours from that moment. These are people hiding out for fear of their lives. In baseball terms, they they haven't even made it to spring training. And Jesus puts them in the big leagues. It's utterly shocking. And you know what I think at this point? I think to myself when I'm reading this and and I hear that shocking contrast of no, very little preparation and one of the greatest commissioning moments of history. I think to myself, what are you waiting for, Jeff? What are you waiting for? Joshua Carroll, his family's been in Uganda for years, back and forth a bit from the States and back to Uganda again. And and Joshua Carroll, he's 17 or 18 years old. He's a senior in high school. and, And Joshua Carroll, he... He turned Legos into a gospel ministry. Legos. Let's look at some of the work that Joshua did with our text. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. this. Isn't that phenomenal? It it turned a hobby, fun little toy, into a gospel ministry. And I think to myself that, are, are there not ways that God has made you? Are there not things that you do in places that you go that God couldn't use for his glory? For communicating the gospel message, is, is there something that God has given you that you could, you could turn into a gospel ministry? Jesus says, I'm, I'm sending you. If he, if he can send a, 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 a ragged group of men like this to be the establishers of the, of the, of the early church, why not Legos? Why not any number of things that y'all are part of. The third thing he says here is receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this could be a little bit confusing. I need to do a small teaching moment here. This can be a little bit confusing. Jesus promised that, 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 that when he went, he would send another. And John 14, 16 to 17 says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. But here he says, so that's kind of like I am going to do this part of the story. Here Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit But Jesus also says, a little bit later, he says to the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Acts 1, 4 and 5 says this, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we know that 50 days later, 50 days after the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, after a Jesus ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes in power. Acts 2, 1 to 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's a few things that could be happening here. In that moment, 
Jesus could have given them a taste of the Spirit. We could call this one the taste of the Spirit possibility. An encouraging, an encouragement to, to wait well, the power of the Spirit temporarily upon them that they would wait well. It doesn't really quite fit. God was going to do a new thing. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people to be used by God for his purposes. The promise that was coming that Jesus had made of the Holy Spirit coming was that he was going to come and he was going to be with them and he was going to be in them. A sense of permanence, dwelling. So it's not really a great explanation. A a second possibility is this. They they could be the first to receive the Holy Spirit, a kind of opening act for Pentecost. But then Acts 1, 4 to 5, it just wouldn't make any sense. Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Or we could do this. We could take it literally. That as an object lesson, Jesus physically he blows on them. And as an object lesson, he's, he's saying, this is what it's going to be, be like, kind of like when he was teaching Nicodemus back in, back in John 3, verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says to them, this is what it's going to be like when the Spirit of God comes. I'm going to send him. And you're not going to know exactly where it comes. You're going to hear it. You're going to see it. But I want you to receive it. When the Spirit of God comes, I want you to receive him. After all, that kind of thinking, what's the, what's the big idea I think what Jesus is telling them in this receiving of the Holy Spirit is that that he's going to give them power to do exactly what he has sent them to do. You didn't have to get it right for me to come in the room. I just came in. You don't have to get it right to be able to, to know how to do all of the work of the ministry that I'm sending you to do. I am going to provide you with the power. To get it done. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. To do what? To be my witnesses. To tell others about who I am. To tell others about what has been done for them. To tell others about peace. Be with you. The last thing he says here is this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This feels a little confusing because I I don't feel like I have the power to forgive sins because Jesus is the one who's the one who's forgiving sins, correct? He's the one who saves. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts of sin and is it is He who testifies of the truth of who Jesus is. The word of God is the one that, that, that transforms that as it's taught, spirit of God, word of God, coming 
out of the mouths of the people of God. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. The real-time illustration, even from Good Friday, as you all came forward down that center aisle, and you lay your sins, that stake-in-the-ground moment where you say, it is finished, this is forgiven, and you drop them at the foot of the cross. And I picked up all of those cards, and I said, listen, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I'm not a savior. There's no power in me. But by the gospel preached, by the truth given to you, even this morning as I speak about what Jesus has said to you, he has spoke peace with God through his son Jesus Christ. He has spoke peace with others. He has made two into one. He has spoke peace to your conscience. He has spoke peace into the world. Do you believe this? As I ask you that question, it's the fulfilling of what he's saying. Offering forgiveness. There's the opportunity for forgiveness. If we hold it back and we do not offer forgiveness, there is no forgiveness. As I speak the gospel truth, you have a responsibility now. As the spirit of God is prompting in your heart, those of you who have not accepted Christ, who've not received Christ as your savior, as you listen to the truth, you have responsibility now to respond to the forgiveness offered. It has been given. Forgiveness has been offered. What will you do with it today? What will you do with the peace that has been offered to you today? Will you receive it?